somebody goes in, guns blazing and robs a bank, right? And somebody gets shot or whatever. They wouldn't look at the bank and say, wow, that was horrible that you had that poor lapse of security. They look at it from, wow, that was really bad that those big mean people came in and, and shot people and robbed the bank and took the money. In the cyber side, it's, it's really typically not like that. It's like, wow, bank, how could you not put the right controls in place to stop the bad guys from getting in? I think this with the government getting more involved and raising that visibility, I think that helps kind of shift this a little bit to these are bad people out there doing bad things. They're not using guns, but they're using the digital. Not anything like that can help us in our defense and help us in how it's presented to the public that, you know, companies are doing things and they are striving to do the right things to protect their material, whatever it is the bad guys are after, but it still can happen. And now the government's taking a stance to say, hey, we're going to go in and help cross borders stop this from happening. So I think that's a really big plus. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Chuck Makarian, CISO at PACCAR, a leading Fortune 500 truck manufacturing company, and Sean Murphy, CISO at BECU a leading credit union originally founded to support thousands of employees at Boeing. No strangers to running successful security teams, we talk about 2022 trends and predictions and look at the elevation of government involvement in breaches, added scrutiny around cybersecurity insurance policies, and other evolutions of note. There isn't a shortage of cybersecurity trends and predictions in any new year, but what about evolutions? Is offensive response by governments helping? Should executives perform attack simulation exercises? Are you prepared for the scrutiny involved when getting cybersecurity insurance? And once you have it, what's it actually worth? Hello again and welcome. We are joined again by Chuck and Sean. You might remember them from episode, I believe it was 49, which was sure coding security data doesn't help anyone. Today, we're here to talk a little bit about trends and uh, predictions. But before we get into that, I'm going to have first Chuck briefly introduce himself. Chuck, hello again. Tell us who you are. Hey, Steve. Chuck Markary and I am the Chief Information Security Officer for a company called PACAR. We're a global company. We make Kenworth Peterbilt trucks and DOF trucks over the in the Netherlands and Europe. I'm responsible for the global security program from an IT side or information side, but I also get involved with our factories, the OT side, and to some extent with working with our product development team on the security for our vehicles. Then with PACAR about, gosh, 17 years now. Thank you so much for being with us again. And Sean. Hey, Steve. Hi, Chuck. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at BECU. My team is in charge of uh, protecting the information of our 2 million-ish members here in the Seattle, Washington, South Carolina area. I've been there about three years, and this is this is my second podcast with you, so this should be fun. Yeah. Well, we're through some audio challenges that we had earlier. But we had, honestly, I had such a good time on the first one that I was thinking, you know, these types of conversations are 
I like to think of them as sort of a, a virtual sort of coffee shop or maybe even a bar, depending on your choice of libation and kind of pivoting from our last talk and getting into trends and predictions. A lot of people are kind of dislike predictions because most of them end up being wrong. But one trend I think that I'd like to talk about is sort of incident response becoming more of a, a political poker chip that I'm seeing. And still independent businesses are still getting hit. But now the US government is working with other organizations to sort of take down these rings. You know, there's real sort of penalties behind it. You know, men with and women with guns are going in and arresting other people. And it sort of changes the way you think of response. So I want to I want to lead off with that, actually start with you, Chuck. How does this change? I mean, outside of the, the Michael Bay movie plot kind of thing I described, I mean, for the rest of us, does this change any of what we're doing or, or not? You know, I think from my perspective, one of the things that it does, it brings a lot more questions up when I'm talking with the board because they hear about this and I have to be able to be prepared to respond to those questions and understand it from an overall response on our side. I don't think it changes a ton. I guess where it does change is having our own better understanding of what that means in our response. Does that mean we have additional obligations to inform law enforcement or government or things of that sort? I think there's some laws out there right now around ransomware that are pending, whether you know if you do pay, you have to report that you pay, things like that. So I think it changes that part of it from the business side, probably more so than it does the technical side of my team's ability to respond and what we do in a response. Yeah, I guess that, that's how I would look at it and say, I think that's the difference. Sean, any thoughts from your side on this? Does it change anything either sort of from a leadership perspective or, or from a legal perspective? Or what's the thinking? I always felt alone where private companies were forced to sort of defend themselves against criminal sometimes government enterprise, and now I'm starting to see more involvement. But for day-to-day, does it change anything that you're thinking about, or do you think it'll change anything in the future? Well, I, I do think it changes the relationship that we, we have with law enforcement and you know how we some of the external reaching out during incident response. It's funny, as you were asking that question, I was kind of thinking in real time about the fact that I think your questions are better than the answers I give. <laughs> Because as you were asking that question, I, I actually started to think about the evolution of this and, and the evolution of that question. Because I remember starting out in before it was fashionable to call it cybersecurity. It was, you know, something along the lines of, you know, computer security. And the perception was that these attacks were coming from Matthew Broderick in the basement like he did in war. You know, and it, we were all, uh, you know, after these kitty scripters and hackers that were, you know, again, little kids or kids just, you know, kind of playing around with computers and hacking into the Pentagon databases. And then that evolved into organized crime, nation states, uh, certainly still hacktivists attacking organizations. We started to get this notion of critical, the nation's critical infrastructure and how cyber attacks were, you know, certainly more, more impactful than just, you know, some kid playing around and, you know, shaving, uh, Shaving digits off of bank accounts and you know and pilfering money became you know really about the nation's the nation's disruption, terrorism in a sense, the ransomware and and financial gain and and those kind of things. And now we're at the point where just like if you know a, a foreign country came in and you know stormed troop through my house, the government would react in a way that they haven't reacted when an organization is broken into by by a nation state or a, a rogue actor. 
So I think that evolution where the, the government is finally saying, you know, hey, this is something we have to take as maybe an act of war, maybe short of an act of war, is a welcome addition. It does, how does it help me day to day? I think in any organization where you're, work, you know, you're talking about the return on investment for the, you know, the, the significant investment that we have in cybersecurity, you know, these these actions really do, you know, add to that that balance because you know, business has to know that these investments are worth it, and you know, we're not going to do all these things and yet still hammered when uh, when the bad guys, you know, break through the barriers because they will. They, you know, they're persistent and they're really good at what they do, and, and eventually they do get through. But I, I like the actions of the government. It's a good. It's a good evolution. It really has helped organizations really formulate their cybersecurity. I think, first off, I flattered that uh, <laughs> on the point of the question, I think that for organizations, I think it sets a tone in the minds of everyone. For a long time, I'd say for a eight or a 10 year window, if you got hit, you had to suffer the breach, whether it was your fault or could have been prevented is, is sort of academic. But you had this event happen. And then now you're going to be there's class action lawsuits. There's regulators, there's additional audits, there's sort of fines and penalties. And, and many organizations sort of felt alone. You would see them lawyer up, you would see them withhold information, you would see them not share intelligence. As a result of all this extra heat, there was disincentives to sharing information and, and not just IOCs, but sort of the larger story of what to do, how to respond. Uh, the emotions and the politics that go into response, which is something I have a great passion for, namely for because of my own experiences. So I think this begins to change the view of, of, of all of this on how, I hope, how it's reported, uh, how it's thought of legally, how organizations, including the board down, view an event like this. So it's not, it's not like triple or quadruple punitive. Now we're, we're seeing our own government kind of go after and say, hey, look, we're using government resources to go after this because it's such a big deal. Any secondary thoughts on, the, on those statements? Yeah, Steve, I, I would agree. I had a, a good friend in the industry. He used to use this analogy and say, you know, if somebody goes in, guns blazing and robs a bank, right? And somebody gets shot or whatever. They wouldn't look at the bank and say, wow, that was horrible that you had that poor lapse of security. They look at it from, wow, that was really bad that those big mean people came in and, and shot people and robbed the bank and took the money. In the cyber side, it's it's really typically not like that. It's like, wow, bank, how could you not put the right controls in place to stop the bad guys from getting in? And I think this, with the government getting more involved and raising that visibility, I think that helps kind of shift this a little bit to these are bad people out there doing bad things. They're not using guns, but they're using the digital. Not anything like that can help us in our defense and help us in how it's presented to the public that, you know, companies are doing things and they are striving to do the right things to protect their material, whatever it is the bad guys are after, but it still can happen. And now the government's taking a stance to say, hey, we're going to go in and help cross borders, stop this from happening. So I think that's a really big plus. I think the addition to what Chuck said is is also the proportionality in terms of cyber warfare or whatever whatever you want to call it, I think up to the last couple of years, cyber attacks weren't looked upon as, you know, an act of war or some kind of a terroristic type of um, action. And so you don't meet a computer crime with the full measure of, of the U.S. military. But 
when you start to look at the proportionality and how these cyber attacks are actually being proven to be disruptive against the nation's critical infrastructure, be uh, they, they elicit panic, uh, you know, within the systems, not only the financial systems, but healthcare and, and you know, manufacturing and, and utilities. I think the government start you know, government starting to come back and, and looking at this from a proportionality perspective and you know and realizing there is a role to play going after the people and not just kind of excusing it as, you know, asymmetric and it's not really that big of a deal, we can handle it. And then go and then oh by the way, like we're all saying, going after the organization, like there was more that they could have possibly done to to thwart this. And in some cases there are there are certainly more that we could do, but there's got, there's got to be proportionality on that side of the scale, too. I never want an organization to feel as if, well, government is going to save us and we can have less of a security capability because of it. But what I would want an organization to do is, at the highest of levels, understand how big this fight really is and that something... A, you, you should have great capabilities and should depend on it and, and bank on the expertise of the staff you have and expect great things. But you should also expect great things from the rest of your company, not just the security team as it relates to the security of, for everyone, for everyone's sake. So I don't want people to sort of roll over. I wouldn't want them to do that mentally. But I think the understanding is important. Moreover, the understanding that other areas of the government are getting interested. So whether recommendations or or strong guidance to engage Secret Service or FBI before paying a ransom. The SEC is interested now. So this is becoming a bigger discussion. And I think for organizations to plan as it gets into tabletops and practicing, you don't want to have to figure this stuff out on the fly. You don't want that. So it's it's additional sort of phases of this for a CISO and team to cover if you do get hit, I think, moving into the new year and beyond to say this is, things have changed a little bit. And the thing I'll leave on the point is you may be asked to not respond. If you're wrapped up in a larger investigation, they may say, Chuck, I know you want to clean this stuff up and I know your network's down, but the FBI is in here and they've got an investigation. Help me, help me help the listener describe how do you front that to your executive leadership team if they say nope you can't you got to leave the systems down chuck you're in the middle of it you've got to deliver that message what are you saying and how are you doing it well i think it kind of goes back to what i was talking about at the beginning and you you said it a lot more eloquently steve it's about getting the the board and folks involved now going through those dry runs and throwing those scenarios into your exercises and letting them think about it just like with ransomware would you pay well, for a long time, that wasn't necessarily part of our discussions. And now it is, is would you pay and how would you go about doing it? And how would you pay and all of that? I think the same thing goes in here and saying, okay, we've got a situation, we're down, but this is part of the, the greater good. And the request is we don't focus on bringing systems up right now, but we gather data, we gather intel, and we send it off to whoever it is um, on the government side that needs it. If I don't have those conversations, that that's a possibility in our tabletops before it happens, it's not going to be a good conversation when it happens. But if I can prep it up front and get their minds thinking that way, they might not like it, but at least they thought through it and they said, okay, we can give you a day. We can give you two days, but that's that's all we can do. Otherwise, our business is impacted and ultimately we're responsible to the shareholders to do the right thing. 
So it's, it's having those questions asked up front. And to your point, that's, I think, what's critical. There are organizations I know that were asked to wait not a day, not two days, but more like 25, 26, 27 days as a result of, it, of collecting information. I'm going to start with a quote from an earlier conversation that actually Sean gave. Sean, I don't know if you'll remember saying this, but... Well, I admit that I said it. That's You created pretty sentences, too. We talked about delaying the reporting, the, letting the attack sequence continue to collect evidence and, and your statement or your sort of the thing that could be on your T-shirt or billboard was, you know, facts on the ground dictate response. And so how, you know, sort of the, the messaging around that. Imagine having to do a tabletop where you're be getting presented information, maybe not even from the FBI. It could be somebody political as well or somebody up the chain very high to say, hey, we need your help in doing damage control, Sean. We need to delay response and allow this attack on your environment to continue in whatever form for another 24 and a half days. Is there a way to convey that? I mean, that's a pretty rough spot. Any other thoughts on, on that that you would share or advice or kind of this thought experiment for the listener if they were approached uh, by the U.S. government to say, hold tight, you know, the NSA's here, the FBI's here? Purely hypothetically. <laughs> Preface the answer. Purely hypothetically. I think it's it's a restatement of what we've kind of talked about here already. You know, number one, you, you've got to have these scenarios and you've got to have them practiced. You've got to have these conversations ahead of time. You know, everything from, you know, a ransomware attack where you're probably not going to have the time to have discussions where, you know, you're going to almost have to have your playbook laid out to, you know, you know, do you have the retainers in place to have people step in to negotiate on your behalf? Do you know if your backups, if you can restore from backups, are they, you know, are they also corrupted? That type of scenario, you're going to have that kind of a playbook and timeline, and you've got to have that practiced and communicated. And none of this is easy, by the way. I, I'm just throwing words out there that I realize in, in practical real life, these things are, are tough to do, to get the time to do. And then it extends all the way to what we're talking about a little bit here is, you know, you get into a situation where you have identified a potential data breach or a potential cybersecurity incident. And hypothetically, your external law enforcement are advising you to let the process work so we can collect data. The minute you turn, the minute you shut things down, the adversary knows they've been found and, and, and maybe they, you know, maybe they stop and go away and, and the evidentiary kind of value of the information starts to, starts to lessen. That's just something that you, uh, you have to, you, you kind of have to work through, maybe build out an expectation that that might happen and what, what you do in those cases. And you communicate that with the board and, and in the event it does happen, you are going to have that partnership with your, you know, law enforcement friends that are going to be there to say, yeah, this, this is the advice we gave you know, all the way up to and including those class action lawsuits that you, that you, and again, hy hypothetically, that's what probably happened. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say though, for just to get this word in edgewise, make sure that's the truth. <laughs> I have actually, you know, well, I have heard of places that have used that as kind of the reason it took them a week or two weeks or something to, to notify. And it wasn't necessarily the case. So it, it has to be the, you know, it has to be the reality that advised to wait but um regulators do dig into that they're gonna they're gonna want to talk to the source and make sure that that's true your legal team the, the advice i would give is whoever your first off have make the contacts before there's a problem so have have contacts at the fbi before there's an issue know who your local field agent is and know who they escalate up through 
Uh, same goes through Secret Service. It's becoming a little more clear that it's more FBI these days, but Secret Service is great as well. Understand the relationship between them, your counsel, and your counsel's perspective even on your cyber insurance and notification. So there's kind of a, a Venn diagram there that, that comes in into play. Now, I do know this is public, but not widely shared, I guess, but it is public, that there was um, some organizations that were hit with ransomware that were told to wait for other evidence to be collected. And effectively, they were then burned, but uh, ultimately they were allowed to decrypt because uh, a law enforcement organization had the decryption key. And so there was a, but they had to wait for literally people in other countries to go kick open doors and they were waiting on arrests to occur before they wanted to sort of unravel this larger problem. And so that's sort of a scenario I think that needs to be shared with executives to say, look, our response isn't now about blocking firewall or setting up firewall rules and and closing ports and cleaning up malware and running investigations. It might mean, you know, recently there was a series of, of arrests done via, I think Interpol managed it, but it was 60 meetings across like 17 different governments or government agencies. So they had to wait for that day. I mean, 60 meetings before these other, before it all kind of comes back and gets kind of clean. So that's just another kind of thing to add on in the minds, I think, from into security leaders uh, and leadership when, when thinking about tabletops and how might you respond. You might have that twist in there. And you might want to check your security policies, specifically your insurance policies is what I mean. So it's an interesting topic. It is, I think, changing. Uh, it's a, a trend. I don't. I think it's more of a trend than a prediction, but I wouldn't want anyone listening or anyone else to get caught up in a situation where executive leadership says, well, why didn't you tell us that could, this could happen, right? Why didn't you tell us this could be a potential uh, that could fall into our lap? And it's important to try to simulate as best you can the um, the chaos that will ensue during that time period. <laughs> it tabletops, you know, can be relatively fun and, every, you know, everybody gets you know, some snacks and we all sit around the conference table and tell some jokes and things like that. But uh, I think uh, not to mention a vendor's name, I'll, I'll stop short of that. But And I'm sure there's more than one example of this. But if you have the ability to put the executive team or some portion of the executive team through a simulated breach, you know, sponsored by, you know, one of the managed security providers that, that do this stuff, up to and including having the, the somebody be the local reporter that's on scene asking questions, you know, the members that are, you know, upset from what they're hearing, those kind of things. If you can simulate all that and, and the sense of urgency that's built up around it, it's it can be usually uh usually helpful. That's the part you just really don't realize is you're not gonna have a lot of time. Most times you're not gonna have a lot of time <clears throat> to make these decisions, whatever they are. And I think kind of to add to that too is who makes the decision? Yeah, that's a good point. Is it your CEO? Is it, you know, let's say that we have an attack in one of our factories. Do I have the go ahead to just say, I'm going to isolate that factory from our network, from the internet and just do it? Or do I have to get permission in which case five, 10, half an hour, an hour passes. And by that time it's too late. If we need to do an external communication on something, who is it that approves that? All those questions are things that should be part of your simulation and then tracked and documented. So when, when stuff does happen, and as Sean said, it will, you already know in advance who makes that call. I think that's a great way of thinking about predictions. You know, a lot of times every many sort of security news and vendors and lots of people want to come up with predictions, which is fine and fun. 
but you almost need to have your own predictions within your own company to say, what's, what do I predict? Like, what are the predictions I have? And then what's the, the aligned strategy if thinking that those predictions, quote unquote, may happen and you're mentioning it now, right? What is what I predict, even though, that, so the world is changing, the prediction might be that it could happen to me in the next 12 months. And so what have I done to kind of answer that? You know, I guess what I'm saying is write your own predictions. Maybe that's a good thought experiment to run after each year. Once again, once again, Steve, an expert segue. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. If people are listening, they should notice. You're watching greatness, people. Yeah. Oh, you're listening. There you go. Continue pouring poison into my ear. But I was starting to think, like, when, as you were saying, that the uh, Larry the Cable Guy and, and Jeff Fox, where they have a skit where they like, I believe, and then they say something. It's like, this is, I predict. <laughs> there you go. In all seriousness, the one thing that I was thinking of along the lines of what we were talking about, so I'll, I'll work the segue. Chuck can take it in a direction. First prediction is that um, it's not much of a pr- prediction. It's happening in real time as we speak. Cyber insurance um, is becoming very, um, very precious in terms of price, getting the right policies and what's covered and what's not covered. And so it all fits within this framework of practice, 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 know what you're, know what you have, know what you need to have. And you know, your security programs are going to be under increased scrutiny by the underwriters who are hiring firms to come out and check under the hood before they start writing these policies based on the fact that all these, you know, these breaches and these, they've been paying out. So it, I think that's a prediction is that CISOs that have a year ahead of them where, and if they're not already roiled in this, where they are going to have to understand that process a lot better. There's not going to be up to the, the lawyers of the organization for the data. Not a new thing, but in my travels, I have found that many CISOs themselves haven't read the policy and they cannot articulate the exclusions. So meaning what are the things that if certain event occurs, then policy doesn't pay out in plain language. And what you're saying is a, a trend or maybe trend plus prediction is that the scrutiny is greater. Everyone expects you to have a policy, but expecting it to pay out may then be another thing, even less than it ever was. Is that, is that a summation? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of transitioning again. I mean, I don't remember in our earlier conversation, but just the board being targeted potentially for breach of duty uh, and claims uh, that was brought up in our earlier chat. Is that a reality? Are they, we have, I don't know that we've seen that yet. Maybe we have, I mean, maybe they're named in class suits, but do we think that that's a a real issue? And, And do we think that does a cyber attack or negligence of, of cyber hygiene, does that mean that we'll likely see or could see breach of duty all the way to the board or board subcommittee? What do you guys think? I would say absolutely. It's a matter of time. That would be my take on it. I haven't heard of it yet. Absolutely. I think they're going to be held to a higher level and they can't stick, you know, say basically stick their head in the sand and say, I didn't know. You know, you've got CISOs telling them, giving them information. They're reading it in the news every day. They can't hide from the fact that living in a digital world, that's the reality, that there can be attacks. And are they there doing their due diligence to ensure that the boards are sitting on those companies or taking the right steps to protect themselves? But not too long ago, we were talking about how one of these class action lawsuits ever be won. Will somebody actually be able to prove harm or will a jury or even um, judge uh, award a class, you know, based 
happened, it didn't happen, it didn't happen, and then finally it did happen. I think the same kind of pattern will be established for these kind of actions, precedents. But until then, keep trying to avoid having it happen by forming our board members and, and, you know, and, and picking the right board members that take this seriously. And I wonder, too, just even from folks like, you know, in the role that Sean and I play, the CISO role, whether you're a, a true executive of the company or whether it's just a titled role, to what level are you going to potentially be drug into that, right? Today, when something happens, you'll see CISOs get fired and they go out and find a new job. But will you be pulled into those class action lawsuits? Will they be going through and looking at all the presentations that you've given to the board and, and saying, Hey, you said this. Where's the evidence of what you said? And can you prove it? Et cetera, et cetera. So I had a colleague the other day just asked me, you know, should CISOs have their own attorney, if you will, and their own their own coverage, I guess. Sure. Best way to put it. So part of what you're stating has, I know, in fact, happened where I mean what they're gonna do in discovery is they're already gonna go through and look at any old email present presentation, even a draft. Any concern, any snarky email that was sent, they're already going to look at this stuff, 100%. Now, how far into the issue then is, as an officer, are you representing yourself or are you, in fact, a representative of the corporation? And where is there a differentiation? How does penalty then fall on the, does it fall on the corporation or does it fall in on the individual? So far, I don't know that we've seen that other than people getting fired. That's sort of the penalty, right? You sort of sever your ability to interact. I wish I could quote it. Need Uncle Google's help here with this. But uh, there was somebody uh, as a CISO recently that was got into a pickle, but it was really around more or less falsifying incident response with the regulators and, you know, maybe not get if it was not disclosing in time or, or holding back on disclosure. It was a he, but he wasn't alone in, in terms of the company, in terms of this, this posture they had, but it was, it was definitely seen as illegal. I would say in, in the cases of question, should CISOs have their own, you know, kind of insurance, cover their own, carry their own insurance, you know, ha have an attorney kind of lined up. It's not the worst idea, but it also probably um, is more, more relevant to a situation like, like what I'm describing where you, May may or may not again hypothetically get into a situation where you're pushed to to be the company to follow kind of a company posture on disclosure or interacting with regulators, and then you find that you know all of a sudden everybody's pointing to you that you're the one that let's wait on disclosing or something like that. You, you you may find it pretty helpful then, but by and large, I think really difficult to prove that one individual had you know had so much to do with. The, the failure that it would be to take legal action. I think for the individual as well, you know, whether you're looking at some sort, sort of, some sort of errors and omissions or some sort of additional management liability, I don't yet know the depths that we'll see that change. Uh, but I do think that the point you bring up is additional scrutiny on the topic, which is important, especially when you're talking about notification. And that gets into how do you actually define when does an incident become an incident and when does an incident become a breach, let's say, or, or when do I need to notify government or notify interested parties? That's exceptionally important. And, and I bet if you went and asked, so another thing for your own predictions or trends, 
Go back and look your definition of an incident and a breach and make sure does it is it well understood in your organization? Is it common language? And how does it deviate, if at all, from your industry peers or you're just your colleagues? I bet if I went and spoke to 50 different CISOs about the definition of an incident in their company and a definition of a breach, I would get a wide range of answers, meaning there's not a standard there. So back to your own predictions, could you predict that there might be misunderstanding inside your company about the definition of either, especially as it begins to overlap to maybe your insurer, maybe the FBI's definition, or maybe, you know, just something to ponder. Maybe start with your own team to say, does everybody here on the security team agree an incident is an incident is an incident? And when does it elevate? You know, you typically call a breach. It's typically a, a called thing that you and maybe counsel or chief privacy officer were calling this that it has happened because of supporting material. I don't know, Chuck, any thoughts on on that as a prediction for yourself or uh, uh, something for the for the security community to, to think about? Sure. So I've spent a lot of time working and talking with our executives on the board about, and I would phrase it slightly differently. I would phrase it as an event. I help them understand that events aren't good or bad. They're just things that happen, right? Is somebody logging in? Is somebody going to a website? Is somebody changing a password? Or maybe it's a notification about potential malware on a PC. Events in themselves aren't good or bad typically they're just things that happen but then that's used to translate into does that become an incident and then what the level of the incident is and then how we respond to that incident and then to your point from a regulatory standpoint or other do we need to report it externally so we've talked a lot about that and i think they've got a decent i want to hope i hope they have a decent understanding of the difference between an event and an incident and then to some extent, some of the regulatory requirements we have in the case of an incident, say, privacy-related thing in Europe, we've got 72 hours to, to notify and get the information out that it happened. And then we have more time after that, but at least we have to notify them that we're looking into something. Again, I think that everybody, like you said, Steve, has their own definitions of it and what it is. But to me, one of the biggest clarifying points was them to understand that events are going to happen all the time. They don't necessarily means something bad's happened we'll let you know when there's an incident and then we'll let you know our recommendations on how to respond and then we'll hopefully by pulling in legal and privacy we can understand when we have regulatory requirements to meet it just always gets me how we still often lack common definitions and sort of common qualities of good what makes a good security team what makes a good analytic program what makes a good CISO now obviously there's many variables but even common foundational information, you took it a level deeper, right? There's, there's, well, even a level below that, right? You have a, a, you know, sort of atomic events or atomic indicators. You have events, then rolling up the events, a collection of them could be an incident, right? The, the, this thing sort of builds and escalates. I want to switch, if we could, what I think will be our final topic, but uh, it's really kind of two. I think one of the things we saw this year, or last year, rather, is sort of our dependence on third parties and how that can turn into a problem or a breach there can turn into a bigger issue. Meaning you have agreed to have your email hosted. You have agreed to depend on some federation service. They have a breach, but it's as if you've had a breach and sort of the messaging, it's still on, the onus is on Chuck, the onus is still on Sean. I see that growing and changing, especially as these big platforms are attacked back to nation states, back to criminals. Are you seeing this sort of the vendor messaging and the third-party risk? Once that gets out, 
you're still doing the damage control. Anything you see changing there or any other extra work that you have had to do or maybe will think you have to do in this new year? Great question. <laughs> I guess the thing I would say is on the messaging part, it's it's helping, again, I'll go up front with the business. Look, we've looked at this solution that we want to do with some third party. Here's the risks we see with it. And then here's potential ways to mitigate those risks. And here's how we would rate it, low, medium, or high. Walking them through those scenarios, helping them understand. We have a whole process that we go through with uh, what we call a cloud approval to say, is this a vendor we think we should do business with? And if so, here's what we've looked at from a financial and architecture, security and infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. We've all bought off on it. It goes up through our CIO and it goes up with through somebody at a pretty high level in the company from the business side to say, yeah, we're, we're good with it as long as we put these mitigations we've talked about in place. So we're trying to inform them up front that just like a breach could happen to us, it could happen to these guys, but we've done some level of diligence to say we think that's an acceptable risk because every business decision has risk associated with it. So to me, a lot of this is, is just helping the business understand that risk and see it so that if something does come, it's, it's <laughs> I shouldn't say it, it's not a surprise. It, they're probably going to act as if it's a surprise, right? But at least we've given them some food for thought up front. And I've seen that process move us from vendor A to vendor B because simply the business said, well, we're not comfortable with that vendor. This other one, I know they cost more, but we're a lot more comfortable based on these risks that you brought up. So let's go with vendor B. That's what we've done. I think before I jump over to Sean on this, I think one of the things that people I'm starting to see have happened because of some of the attacks we've seen and sort of on cloud infrastructure and and these sort of SaaS vendors that there ends up being this sort of multi-relationship where you have systems built on systems built on systems and you have DNS being hosted inside of some cloud service that that is not even on your radar, but that is dependent. If that's not working, the arrangement you have with this other vendor also goes down. So you have this sort of cascading problem and what you run, run the risk of is then you, it's harder to get answers. It's harder to coordinate response. It's, it's a little more difficult and complex to explain. When we spoke last, and I'm going to kick it over to Sean, you know, we talked about this tolerance stacking problem, which is actually a manufacturing term where if you get enough things sort of out of center, out of spec, once you go into assembly, if it's not correct enough, uh, it will fail. And Everything sort of the cumulative errors end up being, they may even be within risk, but the uh, cumulative value of the failure ends up in a failed state, right? So you have 10 things that independently are okay, but together are a failure. That's what I'm attempting to get to. And I think we're seeing that. We've seen it with large outages in AWS and others. Sean, I want to kick it over to you. Where, how, how is that? measure the cumulative risk of other people's data centers when we have these things sort of stacked? I mean, I think we're going to see more attacks, but is there a different or a better way to sort of articulate this? Yeah, like I said, one, you ask great questions and there aren't simple answers. It, it There's a bit of an evolution around how we've looked at third-party risk and, you know, and Chuck outlined that very, very, very well. And, you know, we've started to get our handle around kind of that initial evaluation of the suppliers that we work with and then, you know, annually or periodically based on criticality of that relationship. And, and we we have been able to influence the business to make decisions sometimes on the basis of one over one supplier over the other. 
based on you know some security concerns. Then you go into what's happening now over at least the last eighteen months, and that's the 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 supply chain levels of risk where our own security product and product providers and vendors and and IT product vendors are being hit and indirectly that that affects that tolerance stack for for us because we you know we're actually relying on those products to protect and defend our own organizations and yet we're um we're having to kind of check the checkers if you will and and that adds to the burden in within the organization and then the you know the kind of the administrative work that's behind that and so that lead that's actually all the lead into your question of how do we begin to measure that be able to communicate it as a, as a risk and what level of risk it is you know and and probably the closest thing that we have to compare it to is the cumulative risk that we have in terms of a risk registry or or exceptions or you know all the different things we put in place that by themselves don't tip the scale but altogether you know they they add up to you know maybe a they add up to your security maturity basically so this is kind of in that same vein of all the different third party and supplier relationships that you have that you've you went into these agreements because it made sense for a lot of reasons you know cloud providers i mean the the, the business case for cloud providers has been out there for for quite some time we all started to acknowledge the the improvements we can get by by shifting to the cloud but then now we're starting to realize that um there you know this this like you said the uh the cumulative risk, multiple uh, multiple agreements, multiple outsourcing, that starts to kind of add up if we're not, you know, we're not monitoring it, if we're not putting compensating controls in place to stay on top of it. You know, the old adage that you you can delegate responsibility, but you can't delegate accountability holds very true here because we're, you know, we're still accountable for the safety and security of, of those arrangements, those systems. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a process of us, you know, coming together as a community and trying to figure out how to, you know, best measure that and 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 communicate it because it's you know it's not real obvious right now. And if there's another prediction that I'd throw out there, I I have watched the pendulum swing back and forth between wanting to own and operate all assets to delegate, or I'm sorry, to outsourcing and offshoring and those kind of arrangements, and then you know, moving into cloud cloud service providers and, and, you know, third-party management of certain things. And I could see a day where the compute and store environment is relatively inexpensive enough to start moving back towards in-house, on-prem types of arrangements because the cumulative risk becomes too much for some organizations. So we'll see. I think that's a possibility. I don't know that I want it to be, but I think it very much could be. I. I want to believe sort of the promise, and I think it's it's there. The, the The issue is, for many organizations, is they thought that it was just a place they could go and hide kind of their poorly designed apps and just sort of shovel them up into someone else's data center, and they're still going to be poorly designed there. The other bigger issue is is even if they are well-designed and well-understood, the issue of sort of forgotten or hidden services and dependencies that we get where you're trying to develop a risk profile of what is my real uh, sort of threat to my environment uh, if there's an issue, if there's lack of stability in a certain data center. Does that cloud service I subscribe to, is it dependent on something that I didn't 
or forgot to calculate or that they forgot to tell me? And then am I misrepresenting the risk or the threat of attack in some way? And that's what it really falls on our sh- shoulders to figure out is, is what is that, that sort of house of cards, you know, especially, and we didn't get deep into this, but, and I don't even want to name countries, but there's a couple places in the world right now where it's a hot spot. A couple spots in Europe and East China Sea and all the like, there could be, you could go from real kinetic problems to cyber problems very quickly. And the spill over there could be could be drastic, and it, and and I could see shared services getting hit. So that's another maybe trend or prediction. You know, how red, ready are we as the ambassador of that message to share back to our teams and executive leadership if that should happen, which it could this year. Yeah, well, that's that's very true. I mean, the geopolitical situation as it as it is, it certainly factors into those those kind of predictions. Sure. Yeah. And just, I guess, if we, you know, to Sean's point, I agree. I mean, the the pendulum always shifts, right? We may see a push to bring some stuff back in. But right now, if I go out and I talk to all my different security providers, they don't talk about their on-prem solutions. Most of them don't even have an on-prem solution. It doesn't exist. I couldn't do it if I wanted to. That will have to be a shift back too, for them to have some of that stuff even available. If I say, hey, I want to pull stuff back into my data center. Right. That would have to be another big change for most because you're absolutely right. For a number of reasons, it's it's cloud first. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for, again, joining us on the show. Uh, this being our, our second kind of joint paneled show slash podcast. Chuck and Sean, thank you again. I usually ask at the end of each show, but you've already answered, uh, typically you know, related to, pursuant to the name of the show, as I typically say, what does being a new CISO mean to you? But You've kind of already covered that before, but uh, I'd like to give you both the opportunity to uh, close with whatever thoughts you'd like. I'll start with you, Chuck. First, thanks. And uh, anything you'd like to close on? No, thanks as always. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's great to share. Hopefully, if you're a new CISO out there and you're listening to this, you're getting a few tips that you can take forward to help make your company more secure. You know, Sean and I have both been doing this for, for quite a while, and not that we're any experts by any means. I think we've just experienced a lot of things, and hopefully, we're sharing some insight with you that's valuable. So thanks for the opportunity. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, you Steve, Chuck, always a pleasure. Uh, it's probably too soft of a word. I totally enjoy hanging out with you guys. So thanks for thanks for putting this together. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of closing this out, uh, I think uh, forums like this and conversations like this are super important. They've been super helpful for, for me in my, in my career. And, you know, I just... If you know, if you're listening to the, the, to this podcast, you know, I think consider reaching out to Chuck and myself. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't, I don't know. Chuck wants his inbox full with a bunch of people, say, but you know, no problem. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I'm big, but I'm slow. So reach out, uh, cause the only thing that uh, I can really be sure of in this, you know, this career in the CISO world is, uh, we need each other. And uh, happy to help out wherever I can with, um, you know, just having the conversations about what people are experiencing and maybe providing some sanity to that. So appreciate the forum. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks again, Chuck. This is Steve Moore, and this has been the new CISO. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.